You are listening to the Techie Leadership Show with Bogdan and Andrei. Hello and welcome to the Techie Leadership Show. Today with me I have Vladik Hononov. He is a software engineer with over 15 years of industry experience, during which he has worked for companies large and small in roles ranging from webmaster to chief architect. Vladik is a long-time proponent of domain-driven design and revolutionary architecture and currently helps companies make sense of their business domains, untangle monoliths, and tackle complex architectural challenges. He lives in northern Israel with his wife and an almost reasonable number of cats. Hello, Vladik, and welcome to the show. Hi, Andre. Thanks for having me here. Well, it is my pleasure to have you. And I'm really curious about the number of cats that's reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> so we start with two, and then suddenly it became three. And we said, okay, that's too many. Now it's five. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully they don't get even more than that. Let's see. <laughs> Let's see. I was pretty sure when we had only three, I said, no. We are not going to have any more. And look where we are at right now. So you're at five. Oh. Yeah. So I'm not committing it's, anymore. <laughs> um, do you want to add something else about yourself, Vladik? Well, basically it's what you've said. I'm passionate about programming. I got into programming when I was eight or nine, I don't remember. Back then, I had a Soviet clone of ZX Spectrum computer. It was really bad. Like, I wanted to play games, but they just didn't work. So, out okay. of curiosity, I picked up a, a book. It was called Programming in the Basic Programming Language. I didn't even read it. I just copied those lines of code and played with them and modified them. I just fell in love with this. I understood that okay, instead of just playing games, I can create my own games. So my goal and my dream became to write my own computer games. And here I am right now about, well, too many years later, I didn't write any games whatsoever, but as you've, uh-huh. said, <laughs> as you've said, I work at different companies from small startups to huge enterprises, different roles from webmaster to chief architect. And not long ago, I decided to step out of my comfort zone and try something new. So now I am a cloud architect at a company called Do It International. Amazing. Now that's, you went like for different roles a lot. Too bad you didn't get to write a game or work on a game. <laughs> <laughs> But it's good that that's, I think most developers started, uh, especially if they start really young, they start with the idea that they're going to write a game or create a game or something like that. That's what gets you (laughs) to learn. Definitely, yeah. And work. And then uh, you stumble onto business applications and you never get out of them. Yeah, and then you're deploying SharePoint at the middle of the night. (laughs) <laughs> yes, if you get also you get to be a cloud architect, yes, you you get to work <laughs> on that part. And 
do you do you get like calls at night or do you have problems or uh, is no, everything no. systematized no so actually at my previous workplace we started as a small startup i was the first employee so i had to do everything and yes. i know how it is yeah so <laughs> in that company i was the chief architect so i did everything in the beginning then we gradually started growing we got uh, more and more people but anyway somehow i always was the one who fixed problems in the middle of the night and you know i've been doing it for almost 10 years and probably that's what broke me so i said okay my next gig i want to try something else so nine now i am a cloud architect doing some let's call it micro consulting gigs it's completely different and I am sleeping at night. Nice. That sounds yeah. really good. That's the dream of, uh, <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. Le- leading developers and everything you don't want. You want to sleep sound at night because <laughs> you don't want your application having bugs or anything and getting the call like it's crashing. <laughs> Wake yeah. up and fix it. Yeah. Well, Vadik, I'm really curious about your stories. So let's get into them. What is the biggest leadership success story you witnessed personally? Well, you know, it's hard for me to think of of a leadership story which is kind of dramatic with a leader who who leads a, a group of people and saves them or something like that. But doesn't have to be dramatic. <laughs> yeah, but I don't have a different example. And okay. In introduction, you've mentioned that I'm a long-time proponent of domain-driven design. And domain-driven yes. design, it's a way to design a methodology for designing software systems. And it started with a book with the same title, printed in 2005, I think, or four, doesn't matter. And slowly, gradually, uh, there was a community built uh, around domain-driven design. And for me, that community is an example of great leadership. Because, you know, it's hard for me to point out a single leader of that community. Instead, we have many people like Eric Evans, Von Vernon, Matthias Verais, Nick Tune. Alberto Brantolini and many others, and all of them are leading this community together. And the way it worked is people in this area, they really tend to care about each other, you know, to elevate other members of that community, to help them, to motivate them, and most importantly, you know, to provide opportunities for each other. So I don't know, maybe it can be called as, I don't know, group leadership or shared leadership, but the way that community works, I think think it's a very curious, interesting example of leadership success. It is, it is. And it's something that happens a lot in the, especially in the software development field. There are a lot of communities that are growing and, you have a type of um, a friendship amongst the members and 
a level of help that is truly surprising and you don't find in other fields, which is bad that other fields cannot enjoy the same level of uh, yeah, definitely of friendliness inside of communities. Yeah, exactly. And since you've seen this community evolve and grow like from from the beginning, yeah. what would you say was the the key to its success for it growing and becoming bigger and bigger and having happy members? So in my opinion is, first of all, as I said, even though Eric Evans, he wrote this book, Do Managing and Design in 2005, still, you know, he didn't take this role of being the glorious leader of this community or anything like that. He is a very interesting person. Um, he's one of the smartest people I know. And interestingly, often when he speaks about the managing design, he says, well, this methodology, it's not complete. It's up mm. to the community, you know, to evolve it, to move it forward. And yeah, I think that this decision to allow the community uh, to allow the community to evolve this methodology, that's what makes this community so successful and so flourishing, if I may say that. Yeah, and that's something that I found like for other discussions that I have, previous discussions on the show, is actually that good leaders, they don't give the whole answer they actually leave their team members or the group members to work the answers themselves and come up to their own, come up with their own solutions, own perceptions to enrich the whole notion, the, the, the whole project that is getting it's is getting worked on by the whole by the group. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's in yeah. And for me, your insight is really interesting because it it works even like especially like in a group that there's it's not as, as to say as formal as you would say like you would have like a team in a job setting. Um, when you have like a community, it's it it takes even more mastery, more leadership mastery to be able to to guide it and lead it without looking like an autocrat, you cannot uh, use like coercion yeah. <laughs> to yeah. grow the community as much as you would like to. It doesn't work because people just will not join the community anymore. Hey, yeah, well, we do have examples of such communities. For example, yeah? I don't know, for example, Linux, you know, as an open source project, it is, we can say that it's led by one person. And most of the time, he wasn't the nicest person in the world, to say the least. But it still did work, right? Yeah, it still did work. It's, all, it's also the fact that once you have the amount of work to create an operating system, it's pretty hard for people to go out and say like, we'll build one from scratch ourselves. Um, uh, when you have, when you're working on communities that are built more around ideas, 
you can just rephrase those ideas into something else and rename them and have another community that discusses basically the same thing but with other terminology so it's 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 harder to say like to have, to build a community that's coerced when it's when it's an idea based uh, when you have like a lot of work like for example like having linux or you have some other major fr frameworks or languages even software languages yes there is like um, for example i come from the ruby community and i i love a lot uh, matsumoto and he, uh, and the whole concept that you have in the ruby community of uh, we have to be nice because Matt is nice Mm -hmm. that that's like, that's like the mantra that's going on for the community and people are amazingly nice inside the Ruby community <laughs> which i appreciate a lot um yeah that's cool i i never wrote a single line of ruby code i have to admit unfortunately <laughs> Well, give it a try and see how it is. It's not that complicated. Um, uh, it is a language that, besides it helps you get work done, it also provides, a, a, it pro at least from my point of view, it provides the most level of pleasure when coding and working. And the whole community is striving towards creating as much pleasure when working and writing code and making it as effortless and pleasurable as possible. So that's like the goal behind of it. Yeah. Oh. Well, for, cool. for me, that was like, yeah, it was a good philosophy for me. Uh, Vladik, moving on. I'm curious, what is the biggest leadership failure you had the unfortunate experience of witnessing? Failure. Okay, so for a failure, you know, again, I will give an example from the same area. Okay. So without mentioning names and patterns and stuff like that, let's say that we do have other methodologies for designing software. Yes, we do. There are a lot. <laughs> yeah. So... We have a lot of them, but there is a few of them and people who came up with those ideas, they were quite opposite of what happened in domain-driven design. So instead of, you know, motivating the community, those people decided that first of all they came up with those ideas so they are the authorities and second instead of teaching other people how to use their ideas for their advantage instead they concentrated on on putting down other people's ideas by making mm. some by making some, you know, derogatory comments about other people's, about people, other people's ideas and stuff like that. And what happened was those comments 
turned many people away from them because, you know, just not everybody want to listen to people who, you know, just saying bad stuff about other professionals. Yes. And that's really unfortunate because, because their ideas were great. Like they are great, at least some of them. <laughs> uh, and they do need to be heard. But right now, many people don't want to hear those ideas because of the way they are uh, communicated. So for me, that's a huge leadership failure. Because again, some of those ideas are great. I do believe in them. I think they could make the world a bit better, you know, to evolve our industry a bit. Yes. But it didn't happen. And for me, that's the reason. Because they scared people off. Yeah, and there are concepts that you find somewhere where it's really hard to find out some con some concepts or ideas there there might be really valuable but they don't never see let's say like the day of light they don't propagate through the community or build a community around them and yeah. break create get like to the a certain number of people inside of it that it snowballs and it's everybody finds out about the ideas and you, you start having all kinds of uh, other ideas built on top of them and different flavors of the same idea. Mm -hmm. um, and it's from, from one point of view, I think it's bad that it's happening, mm -hmm. especially when you have something that is so different than what you have already. Um, that you know exactly like as a developer usually you find out that new ideas are old ideas repackaged and uh, really new new ideas that are breakthrough ideas them really hard for them to see the day of light because you have big names that either ignore them or as you said like sometimes they put them down and yeah. then they never uh, catch the imagination of, <laughs> of the community yeah. Yeah, yeah. By the way, in that specific, in those specific cases, it's a bit opposite because there were like taking on some older ideas with their new, new stuff, but they, they couldn't get any traction because of the way there they were communicating their ideas. And that's something like. <clears throat> Do you find, Vladik, that communication is even more important when you are a developer? Yeah, of course, you know. Uh, one of the biggest lies of our industry is they used to tell us, come come to us, uh, work with computers, you won't have to interact with people. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> even more so if you... Uh, if you want to be a, a senior a software engineer or an architect or, God forbid, team leader. I'm just joking about God forbid. It's okay to be team leader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, but if you came to the industry because you didn't want to interact with people, then yeah, maybe it's, it's not a good idea. 
if you work in a team, like just two developers working together, they have to communicate a lot just to make sure they don't spend a lot of time fixing one each other's bugs and problems and having integration issues. So there's a lot of communication. If in, in a team of two developers that they're working, for example, let's say they're working on their own pro, pro, program or their own project, so and they don't want to sell it, they don't want to do anything like that, just for themselves to build something that only the two of them are going to use. They still need to, to converse and talk through a lot of issues and a lot of problems together to be able to bring it to the day of light. Yeah, yeah, definitely. By the way, the domain-driven design methodology, uh, one of its practices is about how to simplify the communication between teams working on the same project or how to simplify the communication between software engineers and and the business people, the domain experts, product managers, etc. Uh, which is a type of headache on its own when you have to interact with business people. <laughs> it's, sometimes it's not pleasure. Well, I know. Um, <laughs> what do you recommend like to have, because based on your experience, what would you recommend to make it more efficient and really get the right information from business people to build something that they're going to say at the end, like, yes, it's what we wanted. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, back in the university, I did the research, why software projects fail. Okay. And interestingly, the majority of them fail because of communication issues. And it may, by the way, if you look at uh, different papers, they may not state it clearly that communication is the reason for failure, but it may be something related. For example, business people didn't communicate their requirements or engineers didn't communicate their progress. Anyway, one way or another, it's somehow related to communication. Yes. And that's why I fell in love with domain-driven design because at the core of that methodology is the practice of how you can understand domain experts' way of thinking about the business domain of your system, how to speak with them in the same language, not in the language of, I don't know, classes, methods, or store procedures, but in the business language, in the language that they do understand and in the business domain that they're experts in. And the second part of domain-driven design is actually how can you translate that knowledge of business domain into software, into components of a system, and how to implement the system's components in such a way that your code, even the object model you build, speaks the language of the business domain. That's the goal of domain-driven design. And for me, I know it may sound scary, you know, if you look at the first uh, domain-driven design book, it's scary. It's like, yes. I don't remember, 700 pages. Uh, there are other books by Von Vernon. Uh, even I wrote a book on domain-driven design. We can speak about it a bit later. 
Uh, so my advice, first of all, to acknowledge that communication is a deciding factor in software development success. And I'm pretty sure that everybody with at least some experience in our field can find at least a handful of examples where things went wrong because of poor communication. And there might be different types of communication. And again, in my opinion, domain-driven design, even if you're not going to use it in your day-to-day -day life, I think it's something that each software engineer has to be familiar with. Yes, I agree with that. So, for example, I never used domain-driven design. I used some concepts from it, but I got familiar with it and was able to take some concepts that I said, like, I like these parts. And yeah. I'm going to apply them to, to this project because I think they're going to work really well. Yeah. Um, and since we're talking about like domain-driven design, do you think, it, could you say like a little, could, you, could there be like a domain-driven leadership? Uh, domain-driven leadership, that's interesting. Yeah, like, like taking concept from domain-driven design and applying them to leadership. So I would say that anybody who practices domain-driven design, and I'm speaking about both strategic and technical domain-driven design, in, why, yes. in one way or another is already doing what you called domain-driven leadership. Because in domain-driven design, you are not just building your entity model in code. You have to validate the model that you are implementing in code with domain experts. You have to speak with them in their language. Yes. You, have, you have to validate their, those models and those ideas. You cannot rely on some translator or like a software analyst, you know, like that guy from the movie Office Space. <laughs> so, yes. oh, I'm taking the requirements from business people and communicating them to the engineers. No, it doesn't work that, that way. I believe that to truly succeed in complex business domains, software engineers have to validate their ideas and their understanding of domain driven of sorry of the business domain with domain experts. And once they are doing it, that's already leadership, in my opinion, because they're helping the whole team, you know, to to understand the problem domain better to understand the problem that the software is supposed to solve and it doesn't matter what title you have in that team it doesn't matter if yes. you're a junior engineer senior or an architect if you follow those domain driven designs practices first of all you're making sure that sorry not making sure but at least you're making it your you're increasing the probability that your software is going to solve the right problem for the customer. That's the first, first thing. Second, if you implement your code in such a way that uh, speaks the business domain, the language of the business domain, then you're helping other engineers to understand it because they are going to read yes. your code. 
And again, that's leadership in my opinion. So these two aspects, in my opinion, is more than enough you know, for domain-driven leadership. And that's something that anybody in the team can do. That's some great insight, especially the one that um, you are the leader of the code you write, and it doesn't matter if you're a junior, a mid, a senior, whatever rank you have in the team, yeah. or how, many, how much experience you have. If you, For the lines of code you write, you are the leader, you own them, you have to be able to communicate and talk about them, and yeah. work on them, improve them, and, and make sure that the, uh, the rest of the team understands exactly what is going on there. Yeah. And as you said, because there's lots of software that was written, millions of lines of code, and it didn't do what it was supposed to do. Yeah. So <laughs> also have to take care that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, and Vladik, based on your 15 years of industry experience, what would what is your leadership philosophy? A leadership philosophy. Um, you know how they say that if a tree falls in a forest and there is nobody around to hear it, does it make any sound? Yeah. And uh, it doesn't so. because, yeah, it just vibrations in the air. It doesn't sound. Yes. In the same way, I think that leadership is not only about being the leader, but those who are there to hear that you fall, they play a not less important role here. So in my opinion, to be a successful leader, you have, instead of concentrating on yourself, like, you know, I will have this confident voice and I will dress fancy and I can speak nicely, stuff like that. Instead, you have to concentrate on the other side on the followers and make sure that what you're doing is providing value for them, right? Yes. Because if you don't, well, you may look like a leader, but it won't last long. Yes. And in our industry, you know, we have plenty of ways to provide value. It doesn't have to be only by, by leading people like being a team leader or having some senior position like I don't know, C a CTO. But even if you're a junior programmer on a team, but you're curious about, about your profession and you're learning stuff that other, people's, other, other people do not learn and you can share that knowledge and then you can elevate their knowledge in a way, you become a leader, right? Yes. So for me, leadership, my philosophy is providing value. It doesn't, it's not really, for me, it's not really about having the title of a leader, but again, providing value, and it doesn't matter what kind of role you're playing currently. If you're providing value, one day or another, your role is going to be upgraded, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yes, that is true. And uh, that's, that is the key, especially if you're working in a tech company. 
adding value is so important and bringing new and fresh ideas because yeah. there are so many out there and all more are getting generated each day. So it's hard for each individual member of a team to keep abreast of everything that's happening in their domain or in other domains. So if you are capable of bringing new ideas and ideally if all your other teammates bring new ideas, uh, it, it makes it easier to stay afloat in the sea of information, <laughs> in the tide of information that is happening nowadays. Yeah, definitely. And by, by the way, uh, and by the way, uh, a junior can join a company and provide a fresh look at, at things that the company is doing. But at the same time, you know, the company has to be willing to hear for those new ideas yes. and unfortunately in many cases many are not willing to hear the new ideas and here it's really the challenge for that leader you know to communicate those ideas in a way that will make them heard and maybe there will be some Jedi tricks that <laughs> need to be applied but usually there are ways, you know, to make yourself heard in a in a company. So which ways are you talking about? Do you have some tips on this? So often at conferences, I'm being asked about how do you convince your team to use domain-driven design or how do you convince your team to use event source? And event sourcing is a very peculiar pattern. It says that instead of storing information in a database, which represents state of the objects, yes. instead store them as a log of operations that were committed, like history of changes. And yes. instead of having a state, you can always project that state from that log of events. Now, if you're a junior, and you come to your team leader and you say that, hey, I read a book about event sourcing and instead of storing our state in a database, here, here's what we can do. Well, probably the team leader will say that he is crazy. <laughs> it, it won't scale, nobody is doing it that way, etc., etc. But what can be done instead is that uh, engineer, instead of speaking with other engineers, he can speak with business people and tell them, hey, look, currently we are storing the information in this way. We have this state. What could, what could you do if instead we were storing this log of changes? And at any point of time, we could get a consistent state of that entity at each point of time. And, you know, and we could always represent this information in new models. And though, then those business people will start generating new ideas. Oh, I could do that and this and that. And at some point, they will be selling event sourcing. <laughs> because it's going to come down for the requirements. And the, the yeah. easiest way to do it would be for event sourcing. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, we spoke about about a leadership philosophy. So I think it's another example of providing value. 
when you're speaking to engineers in this case, they may not see the value, but business people will see the value here. So yeah, concentrate on the value. <laughs> and who gets to benefit more by, yeah. from the idea? Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, in the case of software, it's always the, the end users that are going to benefit them more. So if you can yeah. provide value for them, you get to try all kinds of uh, new ideas inside your software. Yeah, they're paying for the software, so. Exactly. And since we're talking like even juniors can be leaders and it doesn't, doesn't matter like the position you're in to be a leader, what would be your top leadership tips for aspiring leaders? So first of all, um, what we just spoke about. First of all, it's not about you, the leader, but you have to concentrate on the followers, on the people you're leading. You have to provide a value for them. And in many cases, you have to be able to see the world from their point of view. So for me, yes. that's the first uh, tip. Be aware of who are the people that you want to lead and make sure you are able to see the world from their point of view. Make sure you understand their problems and make sure you are able to provide value for them. Uh, second. All ears. I, sorry? I'm all ears. I'm looking really forward. Uh, yeah, so second, uh, communication is important again we're speaking about it so make sure you're practicing your communication skills and communication it's not only in speaking it can be in written form it can be public speaking and it doesn't matter you have to be a, to make sure that you're upgrading your communication skills uh, start blogging, you know, to polish your writing skills. Start doing some public speaking. I know it may be scary for many in our industry, but you have to do it. <laughs> there is no other way around it. You have to do public speaking. Fortunately, yes. we have many opportunities nowadays, you know. We have meetup groups. You can do presentations at your company. There are plenty of opportunities to do public speaking. So make sure you leverage those opportunities. And most importantly, make sure you gain feedback and act upon that feedback. Make sure you are improving yourself in these areas. Like, and you're not going to already before we move to number three, I want to double down, especially on the written one. Yeah, uh, it's it's something that I find it's really crucial for developers because nowadays, if you're a developer, one you have to create some form of documentation, and when you complain about another other developers or uh, another systems uh, documentation that is not good, is because people there didn't know how to express themselves in writing usually. Mm -hmm. And you yourself have to do the work to get better at, uh, better at writing documentation and not just documentation, emails. Yeah. 
whatever you need to write uh, messages in slack messages or nowadays most of the communication that is happening uh, around a project is is in written form you have tickets with requirements and then you have all kinds of comments inside the, of the tickets sometimes they don't make sense yeah it's not because the person doesn't know how to talk or doesn't know the issue he just doesn't know how to write his thoughts and put them on in the ticket, in the email, in the documentation, wherever they have to be. So take time. I highly recommend this. It's a skill that you you might not be the best developer, but if you are the best at articulating your ideas in a written form, you're going to be better judged and evaluated than somebody that's way better at coding yeah, for example definitely. okay got that out of off my chest <laughs> so well, for number three yeah one more thing about writing many people say well you tell me to blog but what am i going to blog about like there are blogs about everything i don't have anything new and the thing is you don't have to write something new you can cover some topic which has been covered before hundred times but if you're doing it in a more friendly manner like if you make it more accessible then yes. it's already worth it worth that effort and if not you are practicing that's okay like don't expect yeah. your blog to be a hit from the very first day it's not going to happen but you know each blog you write, you will become better at writing. So true. And the number three tip, Vadik? And the number three is don't be afraid of conflicts. And ah. You know, I don't know why, but I've always been afraid of conflicts. And I had to understand that conflicts are a part of life. And there, okay. when, when there are multiple people interacting, there are always going to be conflicts. And we have this natural tendency to take things personally. Like, oh, he doesn't want to use that pattern. He probably hates me and I'm going to kick his ass. <laughs> <laughs> You go from pattern to person really fast. Like he hates that <laughs> pattern, he hates me because he didn't yeah. even invent the pattern. So it's not your creation. Maybe the inventor has <laughs> might see it. Yeah, yeah. Especially in Israel, things are escalating fast. <laughs> um, yeah. You're absolutely right. And especially when you have people that are really passionate about their their software, their craft, their craftsmanship, there's going to be a lot of conflicts, uh, idea conflicts. They're not like developers. I don't want people that are not in software and listening to this, yet the idea that we're actually, we're software developers are actually hidden warriors that fight with <laughs> in the yeah. office. No, physically, no. We, they're like... Um, idea conversations and uh, kind of uh, conflictual in nature because someone has an idea, the other one has another idea and there's 
fighting about which idea is better and which one should should be used. And usually all the time for implementing the solution is spent fighting about how to do it. Yeah. And then you use the simpler solution that's neither of the ones that were discussed. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. People are like fighting about how we're going to do that, but a month later when they gain more knowledge about the problem domain, they realize, hey, both of us were wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but you're arch nemesis by now, so there's no chance of uh, of getting back from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but it, it's also something that if you're capable of taking it light, lightly, so not get personally involved, mm -hmm. having this kind of uh, debate about software, mm -hmm. it's really refreshing and it's one of the major benefits that you're going to have by being a software developer. It's being yeah. able to, over a beer or during a meeting, to have a conversation that is highly intellectual that you don't get the opportunity to have in other settings. So you, you really you get to use your brain in these situations. And you're talking with other smart people, ideally. So it's going to be really stimulating. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to work on your emotional intelligence, you know, to make sure you are controlling your emotions. Uh, to make sure that you're not uh, letting your reptile brain to take over your thinking. Uh, you know, in many cases, you know, when things get personal, when things get personal, and that's something that I've learned from my my good friend, Sahi Malik. He, one day he told me that, look, people are good. Even if you're fighting with someone, you have to understand their point of view. Like, yes. they're not, most probably they don't want to harm you. Like, you know, they just have a different point of view and you have to understand that. And if somebody is reacting in a way that you didn't expect or stuff like that, well, it happens you have to acknowledge that it happens to you as well because you know you don't know what the person feels what battles he's fighting right yes. now maybe something is wrong in his family stuff like that so that single tip from Sahi made a lot of impact for me you know once i could once i understood this you know it allowed me to look at things differently so now, Vadik, you don't get when you're discussing like patterns or approaches to a software problem, you don't get personal now about the solutions you're proposing? Yeah, so I'm not punching the, per, uh, the person in the face right away. I wait a bit. Just <laughs> you a wait a bit. For <laughs> <laughs> uh, them just... to give you a little more ammunition. <laughs> Yeah, on a serious note, on a serious note, uh, a great way to manage conflicts, and again, there are going to be a lot of them. Yes. In, once you're, once you take some kind of leadership role, you're going to get yourself into conflicts. There's no other way around it. And the way that 
a way to manage conflicts that I really like uh, was introduced by Eliyahu Goldratt. Eliyahu Goldratt okay. is known for theory of constraints and the book The Goal. But he had many other really good books. And in one of them, he says that conflicts can be solved pretty easily. All you have to do huh. is to dig into people's way of thinking and find conflicting assumptions. Ah. Once you identify that conflicting assumptions, the conflict, the conflict evaporates. And again, that's information is priceless. This method of managing conflicts is priceless. It just works. You have to just, when people cannot agree with each other, it's not because one of them hates uh, another one, but they probably have some conflicting assumptions. You have you have to to uncover those conflicting assumptions. Once you do, the conflict goes away. Mm -hmm. And I guess the best way to find the conflict assumptions is by asking questions. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you're talking, it means the other side is finding is finding your conflicting assumptions. You're not doing any finding in that situation, so you're on yeah. your way to losing that <laughs> that uh, conflict. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Vladik, since we're talking about books, what is the book that had the most profound impact on you? I would say that one that I just spoke about. It's called The Choice by Eliyahu Goldratt. It's not, an, it's not a popular book. Again, he's more famous for the book The Goal. But for me, The Choice is a life-changing book. Again, he, in, in this book, he introduces the concepts of inherent simplicity. Uh, and Eliyahu believed that things around us are simple. We are just complicating them. And again, he, he goes into these concepts uh, in this book. I probably cannot, you know, uh, describe yes. it in a few minutes. So inherent simplicity, his method for a, a conflict resolution, it's called evaporating cloud. It's described in that book. And, and finally, he also speaks about what I've, what I've learned from my friend Tsahi that we spoke about before, about, uh, you know, people being just good, you know, people are not being inherently evil or stuff like that. That's something else that he is covering in that book as well. So I think the choice is the second book that everyone in our industry has to read. The first one is the major in design. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. It sounds like an amazing book, and I'm going to put it on my list of books to read. I, my list is getting bigger and bigger with each interview. <laughs> <laughs> you will love it, believe uh, me. I am sure, I am sure. Vladik, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go? Well, uh, I have a blog. It's vladik.com. It's V-L-A-D-I-K-K.com. Or Twitter, uh, my Twitter handle is the same as the domain name. It's V-L-A-D-I-K-K. -K. 
And that's pretty much it. I'm not really active on other social platforms like Facebook. And you also have a book on uh, domain-driven design. What's the name of the book and is it on Amazon? Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so I have a book. It's called What is Domain-Driven Design? <laughs> a simple title. My goal was to write something different from the original domain-driven design book to make it short and accessible, something that you can read in in a few hours. So I wrote this book for O'Reilly, for their online learning platform, which means you can only read it there. You have to log into oh. Safari, Safari Books Online. If you are a new member, you get a two weeks trial period. Two weeks is way more than enough time to read my book. <laughs> Again, the goal was <laughs> to write a book that people can read in, in a few hours. It's, I think it's 90 pages long and that's all. And also in, in the next few months, uh, I'm going to do an online training on the same O'Reilly's platform, online learning platform. They're doing like small, short courses about three hours long and i'm going to do a, a training on domain driven design for monoliths and i'm going to introduce what is, domain, what is domain driven design and how you can apply that knowledge if you already have a brownfield project which is probably a monolith <laughs> yes everybody has a monolith at least one or a distributed monolith which is way worse <laughs> way worse yeah. they're more common now because people just wanted to build them that way eh, but so it goes now everybody's trying to put them back together in, in the same <laughs> yeah. in the same repo in the same code base like, they're monolith let's at least make it look like one well yeah, but it, yeah, it's been a true pleasure talking with you thank you so much for coming on the show been amazing. The, pleasure, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was today's episode. Tune in daily. Rate, like, subscribe and share, please. Oh, you can find further info and materials in the show notes on techyleadership.com, including links to the guest book recommendations.